uh, well, we'll go ahead and get started, and I'm sure some more uh, some more attendees will be joining us as they um, grab what they need to to hop over to their workspace and, and get online with us. But um, I'll go ahead and, and kick us off. Hi, everyone. I'm Amanda Herring. I am the Chief Experience Officer at Living HR. And if you haven't met us before, um, Living HR exists to humanize work and lift the people function. Our team is uh, really working on making work better by building inclusive, intentional cultures, experiences, and uh, teams and talent who are inspired to be better humans at work and reach their potential. So that is um, what we're in it to do in the world. Uh, we operate a lot like an agency for the people function. So like a marketing agency would for the marketing function and our target audience just happens to be humans at work. So um, we're so glad that you're here with us today to talk about humans at work. Um, around a discussion on all things experience. So we have a brilliant group of panelists joining us from uh, different spots around the globe today who bring a very diverse set of backgrounds to this topic. And uh, they'll introduce themselves in a moment, but joining us is Christopher Peterson. She is the Senior Director, HR Talent and Engagement at Hearts and Science. Uh, we have Brandon Kao. He is the uh, Core Director of Product at Bitly and Perry Timms, who is the Founder and Chief Energy Officer at People and Transformational HR Limited. So um, today we're going to be talking about the experience of humans at work and what a nuanced term experience is. There are so many layers and elements that make up one's experience, especially in the now, um, but always too. And to me, experience is made up of moments, big and small. Experience is what shapes our view of and connection to what we're all doing here, especially um, if the here is the workplace. And so, you know, at Living HR, the, the work that we do daily with clients is uh, help them understand experience, um, that they can use words and actions to impact experience, but it's, it's not actually words and actions. It's the feelings and the things that result from those other things. Um, and there's just so much that goes into experience and there are just so many outputs of experience as well. So uh, that's what we'll be talking about today. Just a few things to cover when it comes to experience um, and really what that means to the now and what we're, we're in together and what we could possibly potentially forecast for the future. So, um, a couple reminders before I turn it over to our panelists. Please use the chat for thoughtful questions, ideas, acknowledgement. Show our panelists some love. It's weird and hard to just speak into the void. So um, please chat with them and, and ask questions and engage as we go. Uh, you can also submit questions in the Q&A section at the bottom of your Zoom screen. We'll circle back to those at the end. Uh, please don't use chat to disgrade or I'm sorry, degrade or disrupt the conversation. We have a zero trolls uh, policy, so you'll be kicked out of here. And um, on that note, this is a, a casual come as you are kind of format. So grab your lunch, do what you need to, let the dog out. It's join us and be here and be as present as you can be. But um, please live your life too. Um, 
And then we also will be joined by our friends at Drawing Booth, who will be creating some real-time artwork with illustrations of our conversation today. And uh, we'll be sharing that out after this event, along with the recording. So be on the lookout for that. And then lastly, if you have any issues or um, questions with it, as it pertains to tech or being able to access anything, please just email info at livinghr.com and my colleague Alexandra will be right there to help you out. So I'd like to turn it over to each of our panelists now to introduce themselves and um, when they do, just to add where they're broadcasting from and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Terry, you want to go first? I'll happily go first. So, uh, hello everybody. I'm Perry. I'm from uh, the Midlands in uh, England. Pleased to be here. Part of me wanted just to stay on mute so we could have a normal Zoom conversation and do that whole, you're on mute, unmute, you're on mute <laughs> thing. I mean, I think, I think it's par, par for the times we're in. I'm Christopher Peterson. I am uh, uh, in Atlanta, uh, enjoying the not so sunny Hurricane Sally aftermath right now. And hi everyone, I'm Brandon and I am currently in mountainous Denver. So really glad to be here with everyone and looking forward to the art and the conversation. Awesome. Thank you guys. All right, so to kick things off, we have a brief poll, which um, my colleagues are going to drop in the chat feature right now. So if you will refer to your screen, you'll see our first question in the poll, which is, which of the below um, employee experience touch points do you feel will need to adapt most for the future of work? So we have each of those touch points um, in the employee experience attraction, the very beginning part of that experience with an organization, the hiring process, actually getting onboarded and becoming part of the team, receiving and delivering performance feedback, and um, growing within an organization and development in our new way of working. And then um, lastly, transitioning or leaving an organization. And then the second question is, do you feel your organization has leveraged technology to improve your employee experience? Kind of a yes or no. I'm sure you have caveats, so you can add those to the chat. <laughs> All right, so it looks like a lot of votes for onboarding and growth and learning and development. Yep. That might be a very direct correlation to remote, which has made inviting people into our usual cultures a little bit more difficult, challenging, and then um, just delivering that experience for an opportunity for growth and learning and development with fewer um, in-person touch points. And then the second one looks like about 71% of your organizations have leveraged tech, that's, which is great. And also not that surprising, it's a necessity, <laughs> especially now, you have no other choice. And 29% say that they feel their organizations have not. Interesting, okay. 
So we'll dig into that a little bit as we go. Um, thank you all for participating too. Okay. So what I would love to start with, and we'll, we'll dig into some of those key questions because they're really pertinent to the experience that humans are having at work right now. Um, but employee experience is such a nuanced word, maybe an overused term that um, gets thrown around a lot. I think it gets confused sometimes with engagement as well, like in, in employee engagement and employee experience and whether experience is an input or an output, kind of the same issue that engagement has. So um, what does experience mean to each of you, like your personal or your preferred definition when you talk about um, experience in the context of work? I will take it. <laughs> Thanks, um, I'll start. I'll start it off if it's okay with you, gentlemen. So it's interesting. I, you know, one of the things I was thinking about when I look at this um, all all star cast of folks on the panel today is um, I'm one probably the most boring of the crew, but I also I'm really excited to be here because I'm in a function that I think um, the world has varying degrees of affinity for. Right? I'm in corporate HR, and I get my bubble burst on quite a regular basis. Um, by people you know, self-identified as employees of an organization who don't see HR as being experienced partners or being facilitators of a good experience or being focused on that, right? Um, I, even just recently, I made a mistake and woke up at three o'clock in the morning and got on a fishbowl. What a dummy. Um, and I was devastated and heartbroken because I saw the sentence, don't trust HR. HR is not for you. Um, so devastation, we can unpack the trauma uh, of that uh, with, for me a little bit later, but um, back to the actual question. So it's interesting. I do, Amanda, use uh, experience and engagement inter interchangeably. That could be convenient because I'm fortunate enough to, to lead our engagement function here at the company and I, um, as part of the people and culture structure and organization. So I personally straddle your basic HR business partnering and engagement and talent and learning and development. Um, and then we also bully our way into touching um, uh, tech enablement or how people work, you know, trying to find a way for people to work easier, better, uh, quicker, uh, and then real estate or workspace, right? So um, in that sense, I, I allow myself to see them interchangeably. And it's really every way um, that uh, a person who works for an organization experiences being there, right? So the relationships they have with peers, the relationship they have with their manager, and, uh, and I promised myself I would not drop any F-bombs in this conversation, so I won't, um, but how they, uh, how hard or easy it is to work at a place. Like at the end of the day, I feel like that's at the root of every conversation someone has with their friend and loved one about their work experience. It's based on, on that spectrum, how easy or hard it is to work in a place. Um, and look, a lot of the work that I do on the diversity, equity, and inclusion front also speaks to how much I feel like I belong, right? Um, so that is my, um, that's how I frame it um, and frame the work mm -hmm. that we do at my organization. That's awesome. Um, and I will say that that's very unfortunate that like you, whenever you probably, you 
probably wasn't the first time you experienced some, you know, negative comments around HR. And that's really um, challenging and frustrating. I think some people are a little harder to like see the value and, and get past sort of um, their own perspective. I, I'm fortunate enough to work at Bitly that has a very strong um, and um, I think pe people positive HR uh, culture and perspective. They've been really great handling things in the pandemic. Pandemic, so I feel really lucky um, just to kind of my own personal experience as an employee uh, with HR today. Um, employee experience for me is is a little bit different, but very similar. It's different in the sense that experience is a loaded word for me because as a product manager, product director, as a product person, I'm constantly thinking about user experience, customer experience, and a digital product experience. Um, but there are a lot of similarities, a lot of similar mindsets. Um, but I also think about internal team experiences, like how can the team, um, how can we create an experience that maximizes um, input collaboration and problem solving? And the, the go-to in the product and design space um, typically is you get everyone in a room in front of a whiteboard and you do all these things to, to facilitate that. We can't do that anymore. Um, so for me, when I think about employee experience, it's how as a product leader do I work with my teams in a highly productive and collaborative way um, to try to get a lot of those similar um, types of outcomes. And um, I think a lot about what is both the group employee experience uh, within my, my teams as well as the individual employee experience. And that's very important for me at least because um, especially now it's easy easier for voices to get marginalized in the collaboration and problem solving space when you have lots of different propensities to um, uh, the digital medium. So um, that's, that's kind of a, a lot of different things covered right there, but um, that to me sort of sums up my thoughts about uh, experience. I don't know if we're going round table and Amanda, I know I'm not moderating. Again, I hope somebody warned oh, you about me, but there are two things. <laughs> <laughs> there are two things, Brandon, that you said that I wonder, and, and it's kind of like a choose your own adventure, which one I'm it, it, really fascinating. So the first thing that you said that really fascinated me was about the, the concept of users, right? And user experience and um, whether it's cliche tried or not, I, I've always tried uh, to model the behavior for my team that every employee here is like a client right? Not in a, oh, clients are annoying sort of way, but in, in a, I serve you, sure, but sometimes you don't know what you need. It's my job to help you know what you need. So I'm curious, like, I, I'd love to hear your perspective, if you choose this adventure, um, on the client versus the user concept when we're talking about mm -hmm. experience. Um, and then the other option for you is you were talking about how it's so much easier in this digital uh, all digital world these days for people, for voices to get marginalized. I've actually been feeling I got no data to back this up, but I've been feeling the opposite where it's the great equalizer because there aren't those physical pods of, you know, collegiality that happen on the walk to the coffee shop or I stop by your desk because you're making eye contact with me. So over the last six months, I've felt as though more voices have, have been raised because we're all in the same place. So no one's got any additional street cred. Uh, there's no, um, while this, I know that this is not a benefit in a lot of ways, there's no, um, there's way less like me 
possibilities because I don't see you and you have on the same shoes and we start talking and then I offer you a promotion. I know there's a little more that goes into that, right? Um, yeah. So CYO, Brandon, CYO. Awesome. Um, oh man, I would, I love, I could, I could really go into both. But I'll, I think I'll touch briefly on, on, on both of them a little bit. So for one, in terms of like the user versus, um, how, do, how do you describe it? The user versus the client, um, the client, yeah, client or the customer. So there's this phrase, there's this phrase that always kind of bugs me. And when I think about it for, as a product manager is um, the customer is always right. Um, and I think the customer always thinks they're right, but they're not, they don't always know what they want. They don't know what they don't know. And so, um, yeah, I, I think I love to hear that, you know, you see your job is not like, it also just product management. We're not just order takers. We take a lot of inputs and we try to maximize value and, and help people solve problems at the end of the day, like you are experiencing a problem. And so we're going to help solve it. So that's touching on sort of point number one. Point number two is yes, people definitely have had the opportunity to be elevated. Um, but not everyone, I, I think that there's been both pros and cons. So everything that you've said, I've seen as well. What I've also seen is people with um, maybe lack of childcare and they have a lot of like child and, and home commitments. And so like, if, if we're talking about like a collaborative culture and you had a company before where you're in the room, like brainstorming and all that previously, it's a lot harder to block off conse consecutive blocks and chunks of time to simulate that in an actual digital environment. And so just, you have to be more flexible about um, like, and this is you know, hyper-focused on the type of work that, that I do, but very like mindful of different people's work experiences and, and at home realities. Like you have to look at their, them, them even more as the whole person in order to um, ensure that they're not marginalized because they can't, you know, commit to the same digital um, commitment on a regular cadence that others might be able to. I can dig it. You're totally right. Cool. <laughs> so I've been typically British and polite and gone last. So I'm just conforming to the stereotype. Um, so uh, I recently saw a post where the words employee experience were included in a nine box grid that was labeled BS bingo. Right. And it was almost like saying this is BS. This is not a real term. And I shook my head because it's like there is always an employee experience. It might not be good. It might be outstanding, but there's always an experience because we, we can't avoid uh, doing what we do. And so I guess one of the things I often wrestle with is when people talk about culture and then they talk about employee experience. It's almost like which one determines and influences and shapes. And I guess I look at it that culture is like the force and the employee experience is like the Jedi code. It's like one is how one operates and influences and shapes maybe. Um, so I guess I uh, do a little history uh, lesson for you. So when I joined work in the 1980s, um, it was all about functioning. Uh, then I saw in the 1990s that my employer wanted to know my opinion about my experience. They didn't have to act on it, but they wanted to know my opinion. Then in the 2000s, they wanted to engage with me and they did want to act on my opinion. And now in the 2010s beyond, it is more about, hang on, it's not just what you think and what maybe we could act on, but how is it for you? What does it feel like? And I was introduced to a lovely phrase by um, uh, one of your fellow countrymen uh, based in Wisconsin. And he calls himself the chief eudaimonia officer because he sees his role 
as creating a state of human flourishing. And that's what I think employee experience should be like. It's human flourishing. So talking to Christopher's point, people sometimes come into the workplace and do not know what they are best at until you help them find what they're best at. Um, and then they can start to experience what I can only describe as this state of flourishing. Now, that feels like a pipe dream to many people who are suffering with, um, particularly in the UK, we're experiencing it, and I'm sure it's across the world, the highest levels of workplace stress and mental health issues I think we've ever seen on record. That would be the opposite of flourishing. So if you look at the statistics, you will say that the employee experience is perhaps not in a very good place at all. And then we've got a pandemic on top of it and the issues that you've talked about in tearing things apart no uh, proximity based connections to people so I think we've probably got an opportunity to be even more attentive to what we think the employee experience is like in dispersed and multi-point ways of working rather than just co-located proximity based so I think perhaps its time has come to show its merit let's put it this way and maybe that's what we um, in the people profession um, should stand a little bit, bit more strongly on and say if we have to craft a new way of work where some people are dispersed some are in proximity and uh, some are working flexibly we have to create an experience which is valuable and helps them flourish and helps the business solve the problems that it's here to do. Um, my opinion is there's probably never been a better time to put this under the microscope and try and drive something really powerful to humanize what work is. Is that right? Mic drop. Now that was a yeah. mic drop, Perry. Look I think I heard it. Perry, I heard great. the mic drop. I did. It was awesome. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I was just riffing <laughs> off what you said. <laughs> Thank you, Perry. Yeah, I mean, and it's, you all kind of brought up a really important point right now, which is something beautiful that we've been seeing happen is this transformation where something we've always known to be true is actually being pulled through process in organizations, which is this idea of looking at humans as humans and individuals and personalizing their experience in your organization. So I think with that, I'd love to talk a little bit about how we do that effectively, use whatever's in our toolkit to identify the needs of the individual, but connect them to a shared experience within an organization and make that make sense together. Because I think you need both, you know, and that's that idea of culture and experience working together. So, Perry, you were on a roll. I don't know if you want to take that one. Run that by me again because I was chatting to Emily on uh, chat, so uh, <laughs> I was a bit distracted. Go for it. Team me up again. So uh, just a bit about the the ability for, or really um, the, the necessity. Oh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, we hear you yeah. fine, Amanda. I think there was just a little bit of a delay on Perry. Yeah. Oh, okay. All right, Perry, we're here together. All right, so um, we were talking about the necessity of addressing humans as individuals and understanding and addressing their needs, but connecting that to the shared experience within an organization. So basically, how do we use our toolboxes to do both? Yeah, brilliant. So I think Brandon's already um, helped me with this one, which is that key, key construct of a team. 
Um, and the one thing I see as perhaps a slightly more dynamic version of a team in the modern world of work is that team is no longer fixed to just your functional colleagues. That team is a, is a group of people who will you also want to solve. So this is where we start getting into this whole disassembly of all the fixed structures of you are a job title and therefore this is your stack and that's it. I think we're now starting to see people go, but I can see that problem over there that's not optimising how we are. And I know there are different people across the different parts of the organisation who also see that and want to solve it. I want you, employer, to untether me so I can go solve that problem because that's important for us. That sense of agency came through some research that OC Tanner did uh, last year on the state of appreciation and people the things that I really want to tackle. Um, uh, you know, I want to get um, experimentation and learning in the job, not just when you ordain me to go on a training course or something. So I think all of these things are really enhancing the sense of an experience when people have agency and choice and can connect and, and people can swarm to a problem and solve it and disassemble. That variety, uh, that change of personnel, that inclusivity, um, that sense of stepping in because you really want to. Um, I can't think of a better experience than that, where you feel like you're an enterprising individual. You just happen to have a great team around you who come together for the same reason. Yeah, we, we had, an, um, there was a fun paradigm shift for us, uh, and I'm going to get really tactical for a second, but um, uh, mid-March or prior to mid-March, one of the uh, the company I work for is younger, part of a more established network and, and function and you name it, but our company itself is younger. And so my challenge, our challenge in the people and culture function has really always been about how do we, I, how do we build this or create this identity that everybody who works here wants to be a part of, right? One hearts is what I call it. You know, the, what's the name on the jersey, right? And uh, cut to mid-March, hey, pandemic, um, there was a shift for us out of necessity and just like the, you know, just the organic actuality of what was going on. But I, I planted a flag in this. I was really proud of, of how um, our small but mighty team planted a flag in the notion of, no, I didn't scrap the one, one company concept, but it was like shift from that to the individual right now. Stop. Right, uh, we now have 800 locations. Um, you know, I always talk about when I'm on my soapbox with my team, the concentric circles of experience. Right, so there's the company, the account or department you're on, your location, um, the your manager and nuclear team relationship, and then you at the center. Right, so it's like scrap all the rest of those layers and let's just go straight to the center. Um, and it's really it's it's based on the premise that, and I'll, uh, anecdotally, I'll share where I had this epiphany is I kept sitting in all these meetings with really smart HR and operations people who were coming up with ways to solve all employees' problems, um, problems with uh, technology, access to technology now that they're working from home. You know, I don't have a second monitor. I'm only on my laptop. I don't have good enough Wi-Fi. I don't have this. It's hard for me to manage my schedule with my children at home or other caregiver responsibilities. And I had one of my very very popular Christopher outbursts, um, where in the middle of all of this, I was like, why are you guys trying to figure out what their problems are? Why don't you ask them? Ask them, stop, stop problem solving, ask them what they need. And it, it really was born from what had happened the day before, when I had a manager say, hey, I've got two team members who have young kids. Um, how should I? And I was like, well, did you ask them what they need? Like, maybe 
ex-employee needs your help crafting a flexible schedule and why employee just needs no client facing meetings on X day. Um, but that notion, you know, I think part of the employee experience and engagement and culture constructs are that um, they're at scale and we very quickly had to bring it back to not scalable because it's you know the, the individual in the sense that it's not these these mass uh, decisions and solutions should should not be the forefront of what we're um, what we're talking about. Of course, everything winds up laddering up to that. Um, but that was you know just very tactically that shift in the paradigm from um, and on the engagement events like employee events and programming front, we went from location events that made sense or that were tied to a particular theme to like every week something different. I mentioned, you know, choose your own adventure. It's like vinyasa yoga one day, a cooking class one day at different times of the day because I wanted our team members to feel like consumers who had control of their own fun and no longer had to adapt to company fun. Um, so that was a whole lot of, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 we, 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 we struggled a lot along the way, but I remember that breakthrough. And the reason that breakthrough is so memorable is because it was so basic. It was like a one-on-one kind of breakthrough, but in big company conversations, we don't, we don't always get to have those. So. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's hard it's, to have that mindset shift. Yeah. Mm -hmm. it's always, uh, I was just thinking it's always great, enlightening and empowering when the, those simple and sometimes obvious, although not obvious at the time, but those simple and elegant solutions are the most impactful. Um, and you know, what uh, Christopher and Perry said really resonated with me and my, my own experience as an employee um, uh, at Bitly and at other companies and thinking about organizations and thinking a lot about how they scale and grow when they grow and they get really large, um, it's, it's, that disconnect can increase. But um, something that Perry said around agency, like employee agency to go and be empowered, be empowered to, to do certain things. And uh, like Christopher is saying, empowerment, like empower people to like suggest solu solutions to problems or even just be very upfront about those problems so that you can deal with them head on instead of this top down mindset where you can solve everyone's problems. People want to be they want the agency, they want the empowerment to experiment, to learn, to grow. And um, yeah, so like I, I totally agree with what Perry and Christopher are saying, just in my own employee experience and what I felt like um, has been going pretty well in my career so far. Awesome, thanks Brandon. Re reaching for the unmute button. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's all, it's, it's so, not obvious until it's so obvious for some of these things. I mean, the number of times we've heard they want, you know, they want to get together. So we host an event every Thursday from six to eight. It's like, that doesn't work for most people. They, and they're, you know, upset that people aren't showing up, but you don't, you have to understand what works for people and their lifestyles and ask them. Um, so yeah, all, all of that, all those things. Um, and, you know, part of what makes up experience is all of these levers that we were just starting to talk about. Like it's components and levers that you push up on or pull down on. And so I'm curious to talk a little bit about those levers 
in our current world. So many things have changed that impact experience, so many things that we did before either shifted in priority or became impossible to do. Um, so I'm curious to hear a little bit about the different levers that you yourselves have been pushing up or pulling down on, advising on, um, or just general ways to think about how you go about doing that based on <laughs> Brandon. <laughs> Brandon, go ahead. I, I, um, I, I wouldn't be a, a, a product professional if I didn't at least talk about Agile at one point uh, in the panel. So I, I'll, I'll bring it here, but it'll be, it'll be tact it's tactical for the, you know, my current role and what we do. But um, I think now more than ever, like these lessons can be leaned into and uh, applied outside of product and engineering teams. And so I wanted to share just a little bit about um, an agile ceremony called a retrospective. So uh, in Scrum, there's two week sprints. So every two weeks you have a certain chunk of work that will end to some result that you will mark as complete and define as done. And the goal is to be very targeted what you could accomplish and empower the team to accomplish those goals and those outcomes. And then at the end of the sprint, you spend at least an hour with the team going through a structured retrospective, which allows you to talk about what went well, what didn't go well, and what you wanna do and to change to be more effective next time. And these conversations are great because they're, they're in the context of what the team just struggled in and, and with over two weeks. And it empowers them to come up with ideas and solutions to agree on as a team and how to improve in the next iteration, in the next sprint. And what is even great is when it's taken to a level of experiment empower, like empowering ex experimentation where, um, and this is where it, it could be really powerful outside of um, product and engineering organizations, but like, let's try and experiment something for two weeks and then have a retrospective as a team and figure out what worked and what didn't work. Um, and so that's something that we lean to into even more because in the digital space, like, it's good to have a protected time for us to come together as a team to be very vulnerable and real with the things that went well and, and didn't go well. And it's not a time to celebrate successes as well as talk about things that didn't go so well. So it, it just takes the group feedback uh, model and kind of decompartmentalizes a lot of emotional baggage that people can bring to those conversations and it can help build team culture. Uh, so it's something I would really recommend folks exploring if they're trying to figure out how to empower teams to experiment, to grow and, and, and learn with each other and to um, try to grow and figure out how to evolve as teams. Well said, Brandon. I've got a yeah, build on that as well, which is um, <clears throat> a, a kind of growing sense that uh, you know, talking about agility and agile. Yeah, the rituals and ceremonies have formed part of my consultant for about the last five years in HR. Um, and the good news is it is really starting to get traction. So it's almost like agile in the tech product space um, is um, uh, there's parts of it that are almost wasted because they come to life even more when you work on people projects with the messy complexity that people are. But, but I think the important point um, uh, that Brandon's making there is that you you normalize that kind of ritual and you spend time punctuating effort 
that you've put in to do things and you stop and go, hey, do you know what? We did really good there or we really stank, but you know, we know why. So we're going to put that right next time. Because I think that creates not only unity, but safety. Uh, and we all know Amy Edmondson's work on uh, psychological safety, 25 years worth of looking at this stuff. Now, safety in the middle of a pandemic has a whole different reason but you still need to create that psychologically safe space where you can say, I played with this. It didn't quite work, but I learned something. Uh, I didn't do any damage, but um, you know, we've got something to take forward. And I think what people really love about employee experience, if you ask them is stimulation. They like to be stimulated by their work. They don't want to transact their way through the day. So I think what Brandon's talking about is this kind of ritualistic way of looking and analyzing, but without that getting in the way, it's a normative state to be in. Um, and I think you get a lot more punctuated viewpoints in your calendar where you go, I'm accomplishing something here. I'm stimulated by what I do. I think that's a big component for an employee experience to be quite high on people's agendas. I'm going to troll us. I know you said trolls get kicked out, but you didn't say panelists who troll get kicked out. So I'm going to troll us for a second. So um, <laughs> that was my fault. Go ahead. Yeah. So as I'm listening to this, I'm sitting here thinking, man, um, this is the coolest hour I'm going to spend all day, all week. Um, I, I feel this, you know, um, uh, uh, diverse alignment, like we talked about, right? But I think spiritually, cosmically, right? We're on the same page. And I reckon most of our audience, our friends out um, uh, attending, feel the same way or open to these concepts. That's why they're, they're here. But I challenge what we're talking about, all this cosmic greatness and agility even. And Brandon, I'm an undercover like project management nerd. I love it. I love a retro myself, right? Um, but when we talk about scale, Right. And when we talk about the risk that, you know, I think more companies don't try that agile approach the try retro try different because it is scary. Right. Mm -hmm. And a lot of organizations have a risk tolerance that is very low for, well, what happens if, and this actually, you know, backtracks on the comment I made earlier about just ask your employees. Some of the resistance I've gotten to that notion is what if they ask for something that I can't give? Um, whether financially we can't give it or whether it's unfair to give it to this space and not this space, right? Um, so I, I'm just, I, I, Perry, I, I mean, I think I'll start with you because you probably talk to organizations of, of various sizes and risk tolerances, right? How do we fit this yeah. hippy-dippy cosmic construct into yeah. real life um, yeah. for corporate structures? Yeah, it is such a good point and, and it's far from trolling. It is just really nice prod in the ribs i'd call this but uh yeah i do have to sense check myself sometimes because not everybody's enlightened enough to know this is the way to go right so you've got skeptics you've got also people who would want to sabotage this because it destroys their power base right so i totally get that where i've seen it work is uh is in the sort of build it small let it grow prove its point don't worry about the language and all those kinds of things so i'd say stealth tactics will help you kind of grow this and it just becomes a normative state of sprint based working or whatever you want to call it um uh, so uh, what what in order to get this going at scale, start with a small cell of people who can keep it underground, keep it under wraps, give it some airtime, 
get some evidence and prove the point. Um, when you start talking about value creation, which is monetary and also human and maybe social and maybe intellectual, people start going multiple value sets, are you sure? Um, and so that can be quite a compelling case, but don't show your hand too early. I've worked with clients who have tried to agile themselves across the entire 20,000 organization and it was a car crash. It was absolutely awful. Um, grow it small, adapt it, make it fit where it fits and let it run alongside traditional things it doesn't have to kill all traditional orthodox practices it can work very nice with governance it can work very nice with reporting um, so you minimize the risk i think by being gentle but but pacey and also um make sure that you're not just rolling out an agile framework to be agile what is important is you have to embrace the the actual methodology the principles of, of agile which is experimentation and it's very people positive um, uh, you know, I, I don't think I personally have a good answer for that, um, but I did read a book recently that addresses this point pretty holistically from an organization level, and it's called uh, Brave New Work, and it, it talks about, um, it actually outlines the risk that exists in organizations today, the, the risks that they expose themselves to by not taking a different approach. and offers up some strategies to do something actually pretty similar to what Perry mentioned. It's like start small, come up with one team to experiment and let the outcomes speak for themselves. Um, and, and I can't think of something more product, uh, product focused than that approach. And so I, I really dug that book, but um, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think that that's a great book. And all of this talk about, um, vulnerability there's a lot of fear too like vulnerability is, is a required part to putting yourself out there as a organization and as an individual and as a leader uh and i, I would be remiss if we didn't um shout out Brene brown and her work that she does around vulnerability as as a vulnerability guru but um she talks a lot about um you know that is the, the core thing to high the core one of the core values to high performing teams cultures and organizations and so like you can come at this with a lot of different angles. You can go Brene Brown and be very sort of lean into vulnerability and the benefits there, or you could be a little bit more uh, agile and tactical with um, the book Brave New Work and, and how to potentially tackle this at the organization level. Yeah, I love, so Perry, what you made me think of is I have a good friend here at work who said to me once, I was pushing on a, come on, I wanna do this, you know, in case you guys can't tell. Um, for my personality, I'm a bit, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit Christopher forward um, in my approach, right? And um, I, uh, they said to me, oh, look, I'm not, I can't, I can't get behind a, a, a large sweeping, large scale overhaul. But Christopher, you can do anything if you call it a pilot. Right. Um, and so I loved those words. Right. Um, and I will not give him credit for saying that because he is also my nemesis, uh, my friendly nemesis. But no, it was it was so enlightening. I loved it because organizations have a tolerance for pilots. Uh, you know, it gives the uh, air of control still. Right. And it also speaks to look, Brandon, the science of a pilot is I'm going to report out. There are metrics. There's a defined team. I will going into it to define discovery, have defined stakeholders. Everybody feels like they have their hand on it and that they could stop it at any point. Right. So I love what you said about grassroots, Perry. And then also this concept of just do a pilot. Right. Um, is, is, is sometimes a way to frame it in orgs. 
with less risk tolerance, right? Good point. Cool. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that, it, that Brandon, you were getting at that thing that needs to come first. There's this very base level idea of harnessing some professional humility, or I like this term, confident vulnerability, where you just get comfortable in that space. Like there's a lot of mental transformation that often has to happen, especially in seasoned, you know, leadership, for example, to embrace a new idea. And so many organizations have been forced into that space now more than ever. Like there's, there are plenty of organizations that were just doing the do and they were going to keep doing it. And so that just became not an option so quickly that they were smack in the face with uh, uncomfortable realities of needing to change, needing to open my mind, needing to listen. And so I think that's a key too in um, approaching a conversation about how we change experience and how we impact it more effectively is this very basic, are our brains ready? Are we ready? Like mm -hmm. one of the most dangerous things you can do is step into it and just be like half in it, especially if you're um, a leader, you know, at an organization. So that's a big, a big piece of it too. So I, um, I'm interested to know if you all have any stories of, you know, imparting that change lately or some tactics you've been using or um, specific feedback uh, you've been giving to either your clients or your organization or in your process um, to make that change more palatable, uh, especially if they're not, not quite there. Is now a good time to raise, we've got a question, uh, Amanda, on um, uh, some people are flagging onboarding as what needs to adapt. What ways would we recommend improving that for the future? So maybe we can zoom in on onboarding perhaps, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. We can talk about, okay. um, yeah, onboarding was one of the things I definitely wanted to circle back on from our poll. And so that's one of the areas where I think the experience has become really challenging to manage and um, just personalize and connect with people as they're joining your organization. Um, you know, historically for all of you, I'm sure you've seen that go really well and um, maybe not personally, but seen it go really poorly. And so, um, trying to do that quickly and maybe more tech enabled, um, it definitely presents some challenges. So yeah, let's talk about onboarding a little bit and how we can do that better, properly welcome people into our organization mm -hmm. in new and different ways. Send them presents. Um, go. No. <laughs> Table stakes, um, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't mind kicking us off with the fact that um, let's not overly romanticize onboarding uh, in proximity and togetherness uh, as it was as a brilliant experience because uh, I don't think I've seen some brilliant onboarding in the past. It's been pretty lame. So I think we've got a chance to reinvent it, right, with, with um, ways of doing it. Now, I don't have the answer to this, but I do run a completely remote team. 
Uh, and so in May, somebody joined the team. So um, she's never met her colleagues. She knows me, but that's about it. Um, and she's completely integrated. She's completely aware of what we stand for, what we do. How did we do it? We punctuated it, spread it out. We made it gentle, but we made sure she was productive quickly. We just took account of what was important for her to get going at the pace that she wanted to get going. And she almost pulled down the information she needed. It was almost like she constructed her own like onboarding of one. And, and, and it, you know, there's no science to this, but I just think onboarding as it was is not as good as we think it was. <laughs> Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And I, you know, this you touched on so many things that go back to the, in, uh, the focusing on the individual. What is the experience this individual needs? Um, you know, I I think I threw out there the consumer behavior, right? Let people be consumers. But I will tell you, and this is again a little self-centered. I've been a uh, for all intents and purposes the satellite employee on teams I've been on for the last ten years um, across time zones. Most of my teams across the West Coast, and I tell the story. Like, I'm not a shrinking violet, shocker, um, right? And so, uh, but I've also had some practice. And early on in my satellite um, career, I adopted, I remember having another one of those epiphanies um, that uh, where I adopted this behavior and then forced everybody around me into it, which was when you're remote or when you're only having a digital experience, you get, you get into the habit of only having conversations that are scheduled. Right, you say my one-on-one -on -one is on Tuesday. That's when I'll talk to Amanda. Right, our team meeting. That's when I'll talk to Perry and Brandon. And I started this thing. My my boss was in Portland, um, and I started this thing where I would just like randomly call him. And super busy dude, fifty percent annoying. But I would also just call him and be like, Hey, what's like what's going on in Portland today? Um, and the premise behind that, although sloppily uh, played out, the premise behind that is um, we should be interacting in the way that works for each of us and as casually as we need it to so that we can build a relationship outside of these structures, these squares of video and all of that. And I also joke about how I hired my entire team virtually. I had not met any of them outside of, and well, let me, I say that with a grain of salt, right? I, I've met them on video. Let's reframe the concept of meeting a person. It isn't necessarily just in person. Um, but the first time I met them physically, I found out that I'd hired giants. I'm five foot four, and they're these tall Amazonian beautiful humans. Um, it looked like Danny DeVito and Arnold Schwarzenegger when we were walking <laughs> around the office, like an outtake from <laughs> twins. Um, but that was the experience. No awkwardness, no, you know, it was the same thread of conversation, the same amicability joking. But all I could say is, wait, you're tall? Um, and so, look, I'm not going to hashtag diversity and inclusion like uh, like height is a protected class, but there absolutely um, was a really cool way of seeing that uh, there was so much less like me, uh, you know, syndrome in the hiring. And instead, we built our relationship, um, even though virtually, on the things that really mattered and all of that subjective crap, like, you know, how you look, how you walk, how you dress came later. By that time, um, you know, they already knew I was a cartoon um, and, um, and we, we got to focus on it. So I know I went a bit off on onboarding, but onboarding to me is, is the problem where I see it go wrong is we, we 
even though the purpose of onboarding is to get a team member or your team productive as quickly as possible, let's be real, it's a business process, right? That's, that's the outcome that we need. The reality is it should be largely social. Right. If you've hired right and if you've if you've attracted the right talent, assessed their skills in an objective way, so you at least know where they stand on the skill spectrum, you know what they need, giving them what they need or allowing them to pick what they need. That's kind of one dimensional. It's the relationship building and the social part that we shortcut because we go straight into here's this PowerPoint slide with your you're going to meet this person and this person and this person. You're going to do this, but it really should be largely social. Um, How sharing was answering the question onboarding. Um, I'll use my team as an example. We had first thing in the morning check ins, 15 minutes. How's life? Oh my God, what kind of coffee are you drinking? Do you like creamer in your coffee? Largely social. Um, at the end of the day, it was largely social, but more about, okay, what was great about today? Because we want to do more of that tomorrow. What sucked, right? Um, and that's at least for the first two weeks of life. And then we taper back and we go into a weekly cadence and then we agree mutually on what's the right cadence to stay connected um, uh, uh, digitally. So if that that's my half of a that's... pearl of wisdom mixed. That was awesome. Of, it, it was yeah. all very delicious. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, thank you for sharing that. And a lot of that resonated with me. I think it. it Are you short a, too? A lot of like, Are you short? Is that why? I, well, no, I, I tell. Well, no, I'm glad you asked that because I get I get to tell my my funny <laughs> line that I I don't get to tell as much anymore. But uh, and how tall I am? I'm five eleven and a half, but with a six foot personality. So I that's say that I too. So. I say that. Oh my gosh! I tell people that all the time. <laughs> I got I got a physical uh, the other month and they're like measured my height but like okay, five eleven and a half and I just smiled I didn't I didn't say the, the joke but I, I was about to um, but all, all that was really awesome and really delicious and resonated with me on what like I found good onboarding to to be and it's it's not actually the the tactics and the the specifics of your work function it's it's very people focused people positive. And I, I was thinking about my experience onboarding with Bitly and how it was it was really great for a couple of reasons. One is you talked about free stuff and onboarding, but you also mentioned like a part of experience and culture. It's not, you know, what's what's the what what's what's on your jersey? You know, it's not so much about you, but it's about this company and this team that you're stepping into. So one of the things you get at Bitly is you get like a Bitly shirt. And that shirt does get pretty quickly injected into your common you know, dress like when we have meetings, like, even like all hands meetings, probably at least 20, 30% of the folks are wearing their Bitly shirts during these weekly all hand meetings. Um, but the onboarding process at Bitly is, it's like it, you are required and it is expected that you're not doing actual direct job function stuff the first three days. You are meeting different departments. You're putting lots of different social engagements with the different, with the company to learn about the company and learning about the people and learning about the culture. So um, one of the cool things, like even if you're not a salesperson, you're like, you've given this, uh, like in this session, you're, you learn about 
you know, Bitly as a company and our product and all that stuff. And you have to come up with a, a pitch and it doesn't have to be great, but it's like, Hey, if someone asks you, you know, what Bitly is like, what's your elevator pitch and all that and you have, and you talk to the sales team about it and they share theirs. And it's, it's a great, like, just nor like, it's not just out devoid of Bitly stuff, but it's not like, like in the context of what your actual job's going to be. You get a greater um, perspective of the company and then that grounds you and gives you perspective for the um, your actual job so you, you are you're very comfortable with the organization the way it's set up the culture you know how to navigate it if you're having a like oh I you know what I talked to Alex um, in, in finance and I think that he is um, I should probably just talk to him because I had a conversation with him in onboarding and I can get an answer real quick no problem so it's um all the stuff that you really that you were talking through resonated with me and, and as I reflected on the process that Bitly goes through for onboarding. And your website says handmade in New York City, San Francisco, Denver, and all over the world. I love that. Handmade. Yes. I love that. It's a piece of tech, <laughs> but it's handmade. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Indeed. What, what you've made me think um, is, uh, is how important it is for people when you're onboarding to, to start to do some work gently so that they feel like they're adding value, not just drawing down information. So the culture safari is brilliant. You absolutely have to do that. But some little completed activities in amongst that are so important for them to think, I did something this week. <laughs> you know, I hit a KPI even. Um, uh, and so I love the fact that you almost give them like a mission to come up with some stuff like the little elevator pitch and all that kind of thing. People want to make a contribution pretty quick, right? They're excited about the new role. Um, they're sort of trepidatious about all the relationships they need to build, but they know they've got to do them, but they just want to do stuff. Yeah, the smart yeah. companies do what you were describing, Brandon, um, to have new folks solve problems. Like I've always, I've had this like vision of a company keeping a problem, a problem log. Like what are all the things that plague us, right? And I'll use an example. Like we went work from home here and it all of a sudden became really hard to figure out how to get equipment to new hires at scale, right? You know, we were hiring a bunch right at the beginning of the pandemic and we had never really had to ship. People physically came in. And I was thinking to myself, uh, of course, after all of a string of F bombs, right, over the course of a month, right, uh, with this being a very clunky process, like, what if we kept a problem log, and that's what you dole out, right, in the, in the style you just described, Brandon, to new people, what a, what a business value, because new people are coming in unfettered, and they're coming in remembering what they saw at their last company that was not hard. Um, that's instant value, right, um, and bragging rights, right, because they solve the world's problems, so. That's right. <laughs> I love that. That's awesome. Yeah, I even uh, did that on my my return from maternity leave. Uh, my CEO said, don't do anything. Just like, look at this. Look at us. Look at us with your fresh baby sleep deprived hazy eyes and <laughs> let us know what we're doing. <laughs> and still, even that perspective, to your point, it was different um, than being in it day to day. And I think there's a lot to be said for viewing onboarding as less of a, a thing, like a date or a, an event. It's, it's kind of, it's so much more than that. It should start way before the day you start. It should continue on in your days after that start date and um, really include all that stuff that you guys were touching on, like take away the weirdness, 
that the weirdness gets in the way when you first start, when you don't know what the cultural norms are and how to interact with people. And, you know, do we send emails here? Is it all, you know, Zoom or Slack? Like, what, what's the deal? Um, so I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I'd love to talk a bit about tech, too, in that uh, conversation about those different touch points in the experience, onboarding and beyond. But, you know, we were just talking a bit about connection and finding those opportunities to have more genuine connection with one another. Um, so tech for that. And then um, tech for the experience of doing your job. Like, Christopher, to your point, how hard or easy is it to do my work here and to feel like I'm contributing. So um, I think that obviously tech has always been a critical part of getting work done, uh, but even more so now, like you really need a good infrastructure and the right tools in your corner to be able to do it well. So would love to talk a little bit about that. Um, Perry, I don't know if you wanna kick that one off. I will because you've asked me. Um, <clears throat> so, uh, so we don't do it. Well, uh, no, we genuinely don't do it on email because emails for outbound stuff, right? We don't do that. Why would we email each other internally? That's just nuts. So what we do is we use Slack for all the things that we need to have in the open. So anybody can go in at any time and pull them down and learn from them. Um, and obviously then we have DMS and little exchanges and little groups and threads. But what's important for us is that we have structure to that. So um, our Slack board is directly mapped uh, to our business model. And that sounds like, well, how can you have your business model on a Slack board? So we have one for strategy, we have one for marketing, we have one for product, we have one for partnerships, and everybody knows where to go because it makes sense, it's sensible terms. So what, what we've tried to do is decode the complexity of the organization to simple language, and then people can participate in that even if they're not quite sure what's in that because they can pretty much sense it. We have check-ins, we check in every day, we say what we're up to, we say how we feel, we sometimes have checkouts. Um, we operate a system where we work a four day uh, week. So we have Wednesdays as a non-working day, and what we do is whatever's good for the soul. So we don't touch an electronic form of com communication on a Wednesday. But on Thursday, we have a little picture of what we did on Wellness Wednesday, whether it's read books, do yoga, whatever. We socialize the electronic channels. And then in between that, we'll WhatsApp each other or whatever channel works for us. But we're so connected. Um, but we only talk to each other potentially for about an hour a day. This electronic stuff is not for millennials. This electronic stuff is cool. It's just regular chat and flow and interesting stuff. We always know how we feel because we share how we feel. So I think these electronic platforms that people say, oh, that's not as good as being in real life. It's like, if you've been in real life for a while, everybody's got headphones in looking at a screen. They're not talking to anybody. So we talk more on our platforms partly because we're dispersed um, with more sincerity than even we probably did in person. So I think the, the, the way you connect it works. And for tasks and stuff like that, we use Asana. Uh, so we've got a task board and a project management structure. Everybody knows what everybody's doing because they've got task lists. So some people can say, hey, I see you're struggling. The backlog's a bit low. We'll pull that task down. We'll do it ourselves. Um, so we just make work communal, social, alive, open, publicized, no secrets. <laughs> It just works, man. That's awesome. I, I, what I liked about that is sort of the transparency and the, the consciousness 
uh, being complexity conscious, right? And so a lot of times the complexity of how to like use all these tools and navigate things can get in the way. And so while like technical tools are important, they can, it's also risky because they can get in the way. You could choose not the right one, you could choose too many. So um, I think that's important for onboarding, um, you know, the, it, having the right technical tools. Like we, I forget which tool our HR team had, but it was a series of different things you had to go through. You actually got to like watch like fun videos that people made introducing themselves and talking about different things. Um, but I, I, I guess there's one, I'll even introduce one counterpoint a little bit in terms of like the need for technical tools. And I actually think it's important to figure out ways to do work and, and give people ways to be productive outside of technology. We're so like glued into screens and tools that it like digital burnout is real. And it's so great that Perry has, um, you know, uh, wellness Wednesdays, that, that is awesome. Um, and, um, I'm just thinking about like how that could have like, there's a really positive impact on um, my working uh, experience, my employee experience. Um, but what I, what I try to do is, um, this, this idea of asynchronous collaboration outside of the digital space. So I encourage when we're doing like and this, this is stuff that we would do in person anyway, but we, we would, we sketch out solutions. Even if you're not a good drawer, like anyone can draw circles and boxes and lines um, on a piece of paper. And so um, this asynchronous collaboration would be like, hey, we're gonna have a meeting at this point, but whenever is like good for you, like draw, like, like create some options for these ideas we're kicking around. And then we come together, we put them in a tool called Miro uh, and then we get to see everyone's ideas. They get to talk through their sketches and then we vote on things. We have a discussion. So um, yeah, the right tools are definitely important. They can be a little much at times. And I try to find a way to like break the team away from technology and and empower them to do things that aren't in front of the screen. And, you know, Amanda, um, I, uh, not to be a, a bit of a DEI, one trick pony, but, and I, I think this is lessening over the years, right? But when we think about generational hiring and the need to keep um, a broad range of generational players in the, in the workplace um, and international player, you know, uh, varying, you, you name it, on, in all the dimensions of diversity, if, if we're gonna be a company that leverages technology, which I think the wild majority of companies are now, um, we also have to assume the responsibility for acclimating folks to whatever technology, right? Like I, I joke about, even me, I, I, I tend to be pretty tech-enabled, tech-savvy, um, but at work I use a PC, at home I use a Mac. If I went to a company where I had to use a Mac for work, it would take me a minute because I know all the shortcuts to the stuff. You know, I do different stuff. Um, and I know that's not the same as the tools we're talking about. So, um, but I do think about that, right? I take for granted quite a bit that people know what I know about the tools that I use. And so I just encourage all companies to remember um, that and to also channel the one of the principles of adult learning, right? Um, uh, of andragogy, which is adults need context uh, to understand why what they're learning is important and to understand what they're learning. So when you think about the range of adults, uh, both figurative uh, and literal, me on the figurative side, um, uh, do, do be thinking about um, making clear what the value proposition is for using any tool, right? What it'll give them, 
how it'll make their life easier, not just sort of the arrogant, well, we use this tool, so. Um, and that I, neither of you said that, uh, to be very clear. It's just something that I always think about because half the time I sound like a know-it-all. And so I am self-aware, if nothing else, but I think about, well, shit, maybe not everybody uses the tool. Uh, like I do, or has experience using it uh, uh, based on their past experience or exposure. So, one to grow on. That was yep. my PSA. Yep, yep. <laughs> I think it's a great point. And, you know, we've been experiencing that um, with one of our clients in particular right now who is international and they have production line employees. So, connecting everyone for just like cultural reasons alone, let alone really important updates um, on like safety and things like that. It is, it's a challenge uh, to find the right tech out there and, and make sure we're reaching everyone we need to. But, um, and I think to your point on DEI and inclusion, there is this really amazing thing that remote and tech has done to, like you, you touched on a lot of bias and the ability to avoid some of that because it's just not there as much as it is in, in when you're in person, those biases, implicit biases just come out. But um, there are those moments where, you know, people, I think it's called like the Zoom spotlight effect where they're less likely to speak up because they feel like you can see more of that. They feel more exposed. Um, so it's nuanced and there's no one, one size fits all, which is a big part of what I've taken away from this conversation. It's just that, that importance of looking to humans as humans and making sure you're asking what's important to them and then going from there. Um, but I wanted to make sure we get to a few of the questions that we had in our next couple minutes before we wrap things up. So um, the first question is, with a lot of organizations planning to extend working remotely indefinitely, what are some considerations that leaders should make around remote onboarding as they continue to bring in, oh, we already answered that. <laughs> so I, I think we answered that pretty well. They left the, the last line was the punch one. Um, so I think we answered that one. But then the next one is, uh, love the idea of using agile approach for the employee experience. Uh, where would you recommend people start to learn more about Agile Mindset? That is a great question. Um, most people probably wouldn't jump into to this initial recommendation, right? Wait, so I'm going to go out on a limb, but I'll say start with the Agile Manifesto. It's really fast and it's essentially these are the bulleted points. And I, I think that's a good place to start because when you get introduced to, oh, there's so many different frameworks and possible things you could get into, and it's easy to lose sight of like what the ultimate goal of Agile is. And it's to basically, it's knowing that you don't know everything. There's a lot of unknowns and you need to try stuff out in order to learn and get better and have an increased impact. And so the Agile Manifesto is a series of principles that you should look at initially and, and set that as your foundation and your grounding point. Uh, from there, there's tons of different resources out there. I think at the organizational level, um, like, like the book I mentioned before, Brave New Work, does a really good job at touching on agile principles and how to approach organizational change. Um, and I love the book also because it starts 
by talking about sort of the waterfall, not the waterfall method per se, which is the, it's the opposite side of agile, not, not very important, but it talks about how, how organizations evolved and developed over time. That's how the book starts off. It's like, oh, we used to think of, you know, mass production and the factory line work. And we had to like segment the organization into a, a hierarchy in this org chart. And that represents everyone's boxes that they fit in. And we treated organizational structure like uh, supply, like a manufacturing um, process when it's not that like manufacturing is, it's not people positive. And when you have a people in an organization, you have to be complexity conscious. And so the book talks about that and, and they talk about how to break up that organizational structure and be more flexible and, and agile. So I would say um, start with those two things, like the book, if you want something more dense, but if anything, just start with the, the set of agile principles in the manifesto. And Brandon's home phone number is 303. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Call Brandon. <laughs> uh, the other is um, uh, Henrik Nieberg of Spotify created two fantastic medium blogs with embedded videos about how they use squads and tribes within the Spotify model. And there's enough in there just to kind of get you going about how this looks as a construct and then some of the rituals. Um, but yeah, there's stuff peppered all over the place now. Brandon's right. Um, a lot in, in long form literature and a whole ton of blogs, but within an HR and people um, area, this stuff is really starting to get traction. It's, it's there if you look or talk. To Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you, Brandon and Perry for answering that one. And then um, I'd like to just give each of you a moment to give a final thought and any other recommendations. I really uh, love using this platform to share the wealth when it comes to what you've been reading recently, listening to podcast wise, consuming in any way that you found transformative, um, uplifting, uh, which is always really good right now, um, or just generally enjoyable uh, when it comes to uh, work experience and, and all that good stuff. Brandon, I saw you go off mute first. I don't know if you're ready. Sure, I'll, yeah, uh, I will <laughs> happily start. I already gave one book recommendation a couple of times. So Brave New Work, I think, is, is very applicable here. Uh, but I also mentioned Bernay Brown, and I think, um, I'm like, I had the book title in my, um, uh, in my head, and I like, I'm totally blanking on it. Uh, but she basically talks about- Dare to lead. Dare to, uh, Dare to lead. Nail, nailed it. That's, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Dare to lead. She talks about vulnerability. She talks about how to um, dismantle people's barriers they have around vulnerability. And we talked a lot about like earlier the challenge to get into that. And she has some really helpful tools. She has a, a tool called a rumble, which is, uh, I actually like to think of our team's retrospectives that we have regularly as structured rumbles. Um, where it's like a protected space to have vulnerability as a team. So um, yeah, I would say definitely check out Brene Brown's work if you haven't already. And um, Dare to Lead is, is a phenomenal one in my opinion. Awesome, thank you. Brene Brown fans came to your rescue in the chat. <laughs> Shall I go next? Cause I think Christopher always will finish with a bang. Shall I go next? <laughs> that cool. That's um, why I already got my so, uh, Perry. 
<laughs> so I think I think my reflection goes uh, to so I'm going to kind of make a book recommendation here as well. Uh, Marcus Buckingham's uh, Nine Lies About Work, which is a really interesting, provocative read. Um, in it, he talks about um, one of the lies we tell ourselves in work is that the best plan wins. Now, I don't know who had a plan for a pandemic like that. I don't think we had one. We just all pivoted and adapted, didn't we? But what he says is the best intelligence wins. Right now, what I think we are going to have to get used to as part of the employee experience is to create an intelligence stream about it. That means listening to people. That means creating dialogic channels where they can influence the things we do. Talking to Christopher's point, so a manager never ever has to ask her again, what shall I do here? Because they're listening to their employees and their employees can speak up very openly about things that affect them. And so the decision-making um, uh, impact is, is, is not as kind of secretive as it, as it could be. And, and what Buckingham recommends is that you run intelligence sprints. Every week you have a sprint that says, what are our priorities this week, whether you use Agile or not, right? Um, and, and, and then say, okay, why is that the priority? And just ask people to kind of unpack what they're working on a little bit. So that it's all intelligence led, right? It's like, what's the evidence behind your priority? Tell me more about it. But you follow that immediately up with, with is how can I help you? Because I think employee experience is enriched by people who can offer help and people who know they can be helped. So make it an embedded part of what you do, have an intelligence sprint. What's the priority? Why is that a priority? How can I help? You can ritualize that every week. Um, my other book recommendation um, is about self-managed organizations in Sweden, and it's called Moose Heads on the Table. And it's by Lisa Gill and Karen Tenelius. You'll remember Moose Heads on the Table, won't you? It is honestly the best book I've read in, uh, well, since I read Reinventing Organisations by Fred Laloux. So um, it is an awesome book about self-management. Moose heads on the table. There you go. I told you you guys Thank were you, way smarter. Yeah, I told you guys were way smarter. I, I, have, I have lots of workbooks, but I find myself uh, just consuming fiction, right? So I've just been reading a lot of Khaled Hosseini and like whatever I like, Isabel Allende, the stuff I like. So thank you for all of these book recommendations because I probably do need to raise my game. Um, I think um, if I were to leave a, um, a, a bit of wisdom, it's, um, it's a call to action for all uh, HR professionals, corporate HR professionals really to, to challenge whatever thinking maybe you have. If your thinking is, uh, you know, if you listen to this conversation and you're like uh, wincing or gritting your teeth because it sounds kind of risky or improbable or impossible, you need, you need to check yourself, right? Uh, we work for everyone. I know, I know we work for the company and a lot of our job is risk management, but um, we work for um, for everyone and it is our day job to do the right thing and to, to call people out if they're not right the, the people come first they, they absolutely do and I know that that is hard sometimes to embody when you're trying to manage risk because we that is part of our job um, but I will be damned if I see more LinkedIn posts about don't trust HR, don't go to HR, don't this, right? Um, if that's the brand of HR that you're doling out or employees, if that's the brand that you've experienced or experiencing now, call it out. Call it out because it's, it's not what we're supposed to, to be, right? Um, so I, uh, I, think, I think that that is... Uh, that's all I got. That's the only wisdom I have to leave. <laughs>
in this conversation. Do better, HR. So good. So true. <laughs> uh, what Christopher said. And, um, and Terry, you too, and Brandon, thank you all so, so much for joining us today. Um, and, you know, when it comes to approaching experience, I hope that those who attended will leave just ready to um, take some walls down and consider being more open to this idea of professional humility and um, you know, feeling like you, you can listen to people. Don't be afraid to ask. You don't have to answer everything, but do be prepared to address it in some way. It, those are different answers and addressing things. Um, you know, be open, be humble, and be kind to one another. Uh, we're, all, we're all in it together. So I hope that, um, I hope that everyone uh, enjoyed the conversation today. Thank you so much again to our panelists. We'll be uh, sending around the recording and the illustration that our amazing partners, uh, Drawing Booth, have been putting together for us this whole time. So um, we'll send that around after this. And um, if anyone needs the recommendations for the books and podcasts, we'll send those too. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah, thank you. Awesome.